All right, what is up, everyone? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I am your host, Charlie Schramm, and you're listening to another amazing episode of Untold Stories, where together, you and I, twice a week, although on a long drive or wherever you listen to our podcast, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, Bitcoin OGs, those who have been around 10 plus years, and those who have just joined our industry yesterday, to truly understand. I feel like you guys, my listeners, really understand this industry more than most people do because we've weaved together this amazing timeline. We've been together through so many bull and bear cycles now and hopefully learn from our mistakes and prepare for the next ones. We get to talk to a lot of different companies. I hope you all had a good uh, Canada Day and July 4th, American Independence Day weekend. Um, everything has been kind of quiet lately. I know that there's still a lot of Right now, you know, between the uncertainty in the macro environment uh, put together by the Federal Reserve just for decades doing terrible job and is the reason that we're here in the first place. Obviously, we've been preaching Bitcoin and, you know, what this whole world can can bring can bring for us um, and, and, and do for us, really. But at the same time. Uh, there's this huge macro world going on and internally in our industry, we got very ahead of ourselves. There's a lot of deleveraging and a lot of figuring out what holes need to be plugged and things like that. So you're definitely in extreme fear right now. Extreme fear. It's like where you look at cryptos almost like, what's the point? And when you do that, you're in the extreme fear. This This feeling that we've had now that we're going through right now, this like despair, this like reorganization of our lives what are we going to be doing with our time what are we going to be working on if if prices it's not just about prices it's about cash flow with all of these different businesses right uh there's so much but it always comes back uh we're in the only the first 10 15 years of this technological evolution and there's still so many opportunities in this and someone once told me it's like we're not going to be in a you know we're not going to be having conferences about the internet you know we we stopped going to conferences about the internet at some point in the future when this thing really hits mass adoption we're not going to be going to bitcoin and, and crypto conferences so we're still very very early on but this is the time that if you can build make relationships with people uh help other people out if you have skills in the industry or even outside the industry your skills are now the most in demand. So whatever you can provide, whatever relationships you can make, you never know a relationship you're going to make or a relationship you're going to ignore. It could be the next SBF or CZ. You never know. So make some amazing relationships now. Uh, approach all these people when you meet them at conferences. Uh, but your skills are the most in demand. There are so many jobs. Every guest we've had, if you want to work for any company, that you hear me talking to the CEO or anyone who works for them on the show, going back all 300 episodes, send me an email, go to untoldstories.com or charlieshrem.com. Send me an email, say, I want an introduction. I want to work for this company. Everyone, all the, all the companies are hiring. And another thing, the mainstream media, the mainstream media has been such an enemy of 
Bitcoin and crypto since day one. They've been calling for it to die. Uh, they make their money on greed and fear, on hype cycles. So when Bitcoin and cryptos are doing really well, the mainstream media is our friend. When it's not, they're not. And a lot of that, we see a lot of cherry-picked articles that make us seem like we're in ultimate despair. And that's being done on purpose. So head over to Masari Pro, go over to The Block, go over to InvestorPlace.com, go over to anywhere you read your news and stuff like that. And there's so many positive things happen. Just follow my social media. So many good things happening in the space. Another thing is, is unlike other sections of the industry, podcasters, we don't really compete with each other because you as our listeners, you can listen to as many podcasts as you want. The more, the merrier. I want you guys to find other amazing podcasts uh, routinely. If I'm on someone else's show, I'll bring you that episode and you guys can listen to it here. A lot of the times those shows don't even have big audiences. So you're learning about new shows before anyone else does. Um, and so I'm actually... I'm excited to do that right now. I'm going to bring you into, uh, I was on this amazing podcast called The Pod of Jake, and we had a great show the other day over the weekend, and I'm excited to bring that some nice listening. Um, again, head over Untold Stories, get in touch with me or charlieshome.com, leave me a review if you can. Uh, other than that, check us out at, at Investor Place. We got the amazing Crypto Investor Network. We've been around now since late 2019 with the Crypto Investor Network. I love doing it. Um, and I appreciate you guys listening. It's coming to episode almost 300 here. So I have a lot of reflection being done and, and going to be bringing you guys some, some new style of content in the next coming weeks and months. I, I'm Charlie Schramm, and I will talk to y'all in a few days. Enjoy the show. Thanks for listening to Pod of Jake. I'm Jake. You can reach me anytime by emailing jake at blogofjake.com. Let's get into it. Thank you, Charlie, for coming on and joining me on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, you are one of the OGs in Bitcoin before crypto was even really a thing. It was just Bitcoin back in 2010, 2011. You founded and were CEO of a company called BitInstant, which was one of the earliest and most popular Bitcoin companies of its day. Um, you know, Fast forward 10 years later, you're now hosting a podcast called Untold Stories, remain involved with the industry, investing, advising. Um, just being involved in, in a number of ways as, as the space has continued to develop over the years. And it's, it's a lot different than uh, you know, 2010, 2011, when you first got involved really at the inception. And uh, one thing we were talking about just before pressing record here is how people seem to have forgot why this whole thing came about in the first place, what BTC was originally about, and uh, why all of this exists. I think it'd be really interesting to hear your perspective, having been involved for a decade plus now on uh, you know why did this all come to fruition in the first place and how people might have sort of lost lost sight of that over the years. Hey, and thanks for having me on the show as well. You have a a great voice for radio, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it coming from someone who I also think has a great voice for radio. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. And um, you know, I will say that in order to continue staying in the industry for so long. A lot of people get jaded. A lot of people leave. A lot of people get burnt out very quickly. It's like I was talking to a, a someone who actually worked for the central bank and now works uh, leads a, a, a top crypto company uh, in the space right now. And he was telling me yesterday that you know one year in our industry is the same education as like twenty years in 
in TradFi, as he calls it, or mm. whatever. And I know you yourself came over from from the traditional finance world. Yeah, but, it's, um, it's definitely a a faster moving faster moving uh, ecosystem over in crypto. But um, and one of the reasons why I do my show Untold Stories is to like kind of remind people why the early people got into Bitcoin in the first place. So this was pre-crypto. The term crypto wasn't really used until 2015, 2016. Really, it was still really blockchain then. The term crypto was more widely used, maybe I would say 2017 even. But back in the early days of Bitcoin, uh, it really found its roots in the anarcho-capitalist, but I would say more like free stater world where we were really all frustrated. Uh, a lot of us were just getting into the job market. So the average age was a lot younger in the early Bitcoin world. And it was folks who were just getting into the job market in 2009, 2010. Those were, these were folks who were kicked out of their Wall Street firms that they were working on up until the great financial crisis. There were massive layoffs and unemployment. And people were just disenfranchised with, with that world of the central bank. And honestly, until like COVID came around, it seemed like relevance of central banks were kind of waning and people were looking more towards privately run currencies. In fact, the reason that Facebook's DM currency was so, you know, the member when Mark Zuckerberg announced that he's launching a Facebook cryptocurrency, they dragged him in front of like Senate hearings, like not even a few weeks later. Why? Because the idea of like, it was such a fear that people, I think I did a, a Twitter thread. I said, who do you trust more to issue currencies, the federal government or private corporations? There was a move towards like these companies being able to be the issuers of, of currency because people trust them more over the government. But then COVID came, we had lockdowns, stimulus, and now people are addicted. We're addicted to our central banks. We wait for the CPI readings, home prices, mortgage prices, the cost of, of food. It's all based on central banks. We're, we're more addicted to central banks now than we were in 2010. And we were going away from that. And that was based on the financial literacy that Bitcoiners really pushed pushed for uh, like 10 years ago. And that's where it came out of. It came out of this, hey, we need financial literacy. We need people to understand why they're getting in, you know, why they're here. We need people to understand what Bitcoin brings to the table. Why do we need a hedge against the world? Why do we need people to be their own banks and control their own money? All these questions were being asked back then. And fast forward 10 years later, even longer than that, I'm really happy with, with what we've done and where we are today. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Obviously, Bitcoin has um, you know changed a lot since the early days. Well, in some ways, it's changed a lot. In other ways, it hasn't changed at all. But back in those days, it was viewed as more of like a payment system. It's transitioned to being viewed as more of a store of value, digital gold, as they say. Um, did you, you know, back 2010, 2011, you're buying your first Bitcoins, you're having to like send a wire, like international wire to Japan. It's a whole mess. You obviously started BitInstant to, to help solve that mess a little bit. But, um, you know, back then, did you, in your wildest dreams, imagine that Bitcoin would develop a decade later in, into what it's become today? Did you think maybe it even had more potential or has more potential 
from here? How did, how did it compare to like, you know, your upside and, and downside from when you first got involved with this thing? That was just like you said, you know, some younger people interested in this sort of novel technology that supported some, you know, common ideology. And, you know, now it's, it's a big part of the world we have today. Bitcoin worked from day one. So from the minute you downloaded a wallet and still does, the minute you download a wallet and start using it, Bitcoin's at $20,000. It's up from zero 10 years ago. It's widely successful. Yes, there have been times where the media and mass adoption and printing money got in the way and made the price go crazy. And always, I've been in like 10 of these bull bear markets, you have crazy froth and over-promising and under-delivering and, and things like that. But from day one, crypto has always worked and Bitcoin has always worked. What we promise it can be, that has changed over time. But that's one of the things that when I saw uh, Bitcoin being used for the first time, it automatically struck you and the light bulb went off in your head and you knew it was going to be something great. And so the growth of it was very word of mouth. You didn't have to, there was that famous Satoshi line. I think he said, if you don't have time to go and learn it for yourself, then I don't have time to explain it to you. Because Bitcoin was something that worked from day one and you can go learn and, and as long as you ask the right questions, you'll get the right answers. But you have to ask educated questions. And that was like where Satoshi was getting someone asking him very uneducated questions about Bitcoin. But it worked from day one. It didn't have to promise to be anything. With crypto, nowadays, you see a lot of that. Uh, we're going to promise to build out these crazy technologies, but it's going to take us two years to get there. And people trade tokens based on these future promises of speculation. And then when their risk appetites change very quickly, we see what happens. Uh, that has always been happening in the space. I saw that happen in 2011, 2013, 2000. 15, 2017, 19, it, it happens constantly, 2020. Um, but it was a lot different back then because we were we were building companies and businesses out of a need to grow Bitcoin specifically. But now you could argue that what happens is someone learns about cryptocurrency, they think it's cool and unique, but to actually use it and to do something be beneficial it's not there yet. We're not doing anything using crypto now that we were doing something differently before. We're not using crypto for insurance products. We're not using crypto for home, home automation. We're not using it for mortgages just yet. We're not using crypto for even art. We're still buying physical art. You know, we're not using it for NFTs. It's still, crypto is still very niche. But those who are using Bitcoin are using it because it's their lifeline. For you and I in America, Bitcoin is, is recreation. It's a novelty, it's fun. Yeah, if the US government decides to be like dishonest, it's great to have some Bitcoin. But in all the other countries in the world that's at, where actually Bitcoin is being used, it's a lifeline for people because they don't have currencies and central banks that they can rely on for long-term savings. And so we know we're succeeding there. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of cases these days where it's that separation has sort of shown through where, you know, in, in some of these countries, like you said, it's Bitcoin is very much a lifeline. But then on the other side of that, you have 
you know, people in America, also elsewhere in the world, but they're, you know, paying tens of thousands of dollars, if not much more than that for, you know, a a new profile picture of some animal with some novel, uh, you know, clothes on or or whatever it is, which is, you know, it's fine. Everyone has their own thing. But that's the uh, beginning. The technology for that will end up being maybe in six months, a year, two, three, (coughs) excuse me, will end up being an epic mass adoption. But you have to recognize that. People have to recognize that the buying art NFTs is not the end all be all. Maybe the the technology there is allowing folks to create art using their brains instead of using their hands like they've been doing before. Maybe now digital art can be created using brain functions and electromagnetic uh, waves, you know, brain waves, and even turning words or sounds into art using computer technology and then creating like very unique own things like that is so brilliant and unique. It's being built there now. It's not there yet. So right now during these kind of like very extreme fear bear markets, what I like to do is take a step back and think about the last two years. What was successful? What was it? Which technology is really cool that hasn't been really affected yet by bear markets? And I always look at those and I say, that's when things are going to be successful in the future. Because if in 2018, you sat back and you said, okay, that bull market was crazy. We went to 20,000 or whatever it is. Now we're back down to three, four, 5,000, wherever we were, 6,000 at Bitcoin price. Whole crypto market was imploding. Anyone who sat back in their chairs in that year and said, hey, what worked and what didn't? What was froth and what wasn't? Yes, ICOs were froth. However, the concept of tokens and individuals, there's something there. If people simply did that and invested in the companies back then, in the blockchains that essentially were the plumbing and allowed for the building of tokens and new blockchains, you'd be very successful. You would have invested in Polygon, Cardano. You would have invested in in Cosmos. You would have gotten into Chainlink. You would have gotten into some amazing, amazing protocols that nowadays have made a lot of people very wealthy, but back then were seen as crap because they were just beginning. So now in this year, you have to do the same thing. You have to look at that and say, okay, crypto is not going to die. It's going to be successful. What's going to be successful? And then you have to say to yourself, And my most success, and then let's go back to Bitcoin for a second. My most successful Bitcoin holds have been because I don't have control of my Bitcoin anymore. A very long time ago, I lost control. I have a certain amount of Bitcoin that I am not in possession or control. Time locked Bitcoins. People need to do it. You need to, the biggest impediment to you selling Bitcoin is you. Satoshi talks about the year 2040. 2035, the year's 2150, you need to take some Bitcoin and lock it into like a 10 or 20 year contract and forget about it. That's the best way to hold Bitcoin. That's my suggestion for people. Yeah, it's really interesting. And as far as I know, it's um, not very popular. When and how did you decide to time lock how much of your Bitcoin? I'm, I'm always actually doing it. I'm always putting spot Bitcoin into like, uh, into uh, unpossessable 
you know, because there's always the nine dollar, there's the nine dollar hammer. Someone could walk up to me and with a nine dollar hammer and hit me over the head and say, "Give me all your Bitcoin," you know. And you can have the best type of uh, two of three sharing. You can you can do it anywhere in the world. You can throw, but if someone's threatening you or your family, there's nothing. You know, you're going to give up that money. Mm-hmm. So you need to literally have it where it's 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 impossible for you to touch it for a certain amount of time, even in the case of your death. And then your family, you'll have to figure out ways for your family in eight years from now. God forbid someone passes away two years from now, you know what I mean? So it's like, that's something that you have to almost think. Bitcoin is this wild experiment. Crypto is a wild experiment. But if I had put Bitcoin in 10 years ago at $5, and now it's coming out and it's at 20,000, even though it was at 60, I'm still pretty happy with where the price is right now, 10 years later. But I had so many opportunities that I could have sold at a loss over time. I always tell people it's a really good idea. We are the we are the our biggest enemies, especially now at times of extreme fear. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they say in, in investing, you know, the hardest thing to do is is nothing. And that's often sort of the best strategy. You sort of make your move, one or two moves, two or three moves, whatever. Some things that you have high conviction oh, in, yeah. like Bitcoin, and then just, you know, do nothing. And that it's extremely up. hard. Whenever I'm about to make like a gut reaction for something, and I'm always, I, I sometimes I forget. So I'm going to like knock on wood that the next time, you know, I'm about to make a gut reaction, I don't. But the first thing I do is try to say to myself, Charlie, being passive right now is an active decision. You mm. can choose the best, like it was, even when someone's trolling you on Twitter or something like that. The best thing to do is to just stay quiet. Nothing you could say is good. Zero. Because most of the time, saying nothing is the best thing. So you mentioned earlier, you know, coming coming out of Bitcoin a little bit and talking about the market as a whole, um, crypto. Well, first of all, actually, before we do that, um, you know, like we like we talked about when you started, it was just Bitcoin. And, and since then, it's become a whole ecosystem, Ethereum and, and all the rest of tokens and NFTs and DeFi and, and everything else. Um, some of your friends from from the early days, or not even your friends, just you know, colleagues, others in the space from from day one. Um, some of these people have sort of developed into what's now, you know, known as Bitcoin maximalists. Others have sort of, you know, cheered the whole ecosystem and not everything, obviously, you know, sp- scams are are no good and um, there's some stuff that's just a lot less interesting than others, but some some of the people from the very early days of Bitcoin are really excited about a lot of these developing projects. What do you think sort of um, caused that that chasm, uh, you know, between some of the earliest people in Bitcoin to where some just sort of doubled and tripled down on, on Bitcoin and Bitcoin only, and others have become sort of uh, you know supporters of the space at large. Yeah, it's a good question. And I've definitely like gone back and forth when it comes to a certain type of maximalism. And there's, you know, you could be, I, I've kind of co- gotten comfortable with my current thesis where, and I, and I preach it a lot, but it's, I'm very ideologically, I'm almost a maximalist on decentralization. Mm. If you're not transparent about your blockchain's current 
decentralization mechanism or plan to be. And if you're not transparent about your blockchain's current shortcomings as a non-transparent, uh, uh, as a non-decentralized cryptocurrency or platform like Ripple or something like that, just to shout one out that that I'm very again, you know, I'm very. Sh- I'll, I'll talk about being like, you know, hey, everyone's talking about this being a crypto, but it's really just a centralized federation type thing. And out of the twenty thousand different coins listed on Coin Market Cap, there's probably less than a hundred that I will tell you are fully decentralized or even on that path to decentralization. And Bitcoin is on that path to decentralization. Ethereum is now finally on that potential path to decentralization. Uh, and there are other ones too, but most are not, and they're not transparent about it. And so I, uh, I'm, a dis- I'm a decentralization maximalist because I don't like to waste time. And I got involved and I dedicated my life to this industry and I dedicated my life to Bitcoin and to the Church of Satoshi, as I call it. I've dedicated my life to this. If we're not doing decentralization, if we're not doing permissionless blockchains where you don't need permission to mine it, to join it, to transact on it, to be a part of the community there. And I'm talking about the inability for someone to freeze transactions, to uh, withdraw to um, tell you that you can't send money. I'm not talking about anonymity. I'm talking about the complete control that you have over your money. If you're not doing that or you're not on the pathway to that, then I don't want you to be, you know, part of, I don't want you to be part of my network or my relationships and and, and part of the community that, that I've helped build here. Because what are we doing here? You're basically a glorified version of Google Spreadsheets with a token. And I'm not here to do that. They started with Satoshi and the vision of Satoshi and the vision of decentralization with Bitcoin. I'm totally okay saying, hey, I'm not the smartest person in the room and we have to build upon these things. But I am comfortable saying that if we're not doing it with decentralization, then I don't want to do it at all. Yeah. So let's rewind a bit to, um, you know, when you first got into Bitcoin, you mentioned sort of having been on this mission for, for a decade plus now, and almost it's, it's almost like a religious thing at this point, and, and you've committed your life to this. Um, back in the early days, I think when you first heard about Bitcoin, you were on a mailing list of some sort, and some of the early murmurs came out and you sort of ignored it. And eventually, I think the first time you started buying in was you were a senior in college, and there was an article in Gawker about Bitcoin and Silk Road and the price shot up. You bought around like $32 or something like that and kept going up for a bit and then crashed to $2. And this was all around the time where you realized there was an issue and buying was a huge pain. You lose your money, you lose your Bitcoin. There needed to be something else. You went and started BitInstant. Um, how did, you know, if that was your intro to, to Bitcoin, sort of this, you know, watching this rise up to 32 and, and then buying and, and going up from there, and then the subsequent crash to $2, you know, huge crash. How did that like early days, you know, it, it would be easy, I think, to have your belief in Bitcoin shaken at that point, but you basically doubled, tripled, quadrupled down and committed your life to this thing. How, how did you sort of navigate that, um, you know, just up and down early days? Yeah, it's like, it's a good question. And it's actually pretty funny because 
most people who have been successful in the industry that are here today from Sam at FTX and CZ at Binance and, and everyone, every, I mean, every company, uh, they got involved during like a bull market and then it crashed and they lost a bunch of their money. Uh, a lot of people it's, it's, it's kind of funny how that happened. Um, I would say that bull run was the first time that I FOMO'd into Bitcoin because before that really like first wave of media attention, when the price went up to $32 in 2011, Bitcoiners, we were just relegated to kind of the, the IRC rooms and the chat rooms, and there was no real value to Bitcoin back then. And at that point, there was no FOMO to own much of it. All I was doing before that was like selling electronics and cameras and JetBlue vouchers on the, on the Bitcoin forums and earning Bitcoin for it. I was never buying it. No one really bought Bitcoin. There was no need to buy Bitcoin. The only reason you'd buy Bitcoin was if you needed some for inventory to resell to other people or to give away. Gavin was buying Bitcoin to put in his faucet to sell, to give away. That was the initial demand for Bitcoin. Uh, you could argue that Silk Road was actually one of the first real utilities for Bitcoin because people buying and selling cannabis and other things like that on the dark web, those people were traditionally disenfranchised from the other financial communities. So that was that like first wave. And then all of a sudden the Bitcoin price gets goes crazy and everyone and I'm buying Bitcoin because, oh, my God, it's going to FOMO and it's going to go to who knows where. And I wanted to own a bunch. And then as soon as I did, the price went to back down to almost zero. I was like, OK, we need to create some real utility for this thing. We need to build this out and make this something. Right. And and you're still, you know, a young kid at this point, basically. I think you're graduating college or, or somewhere around then. Um, and I, I think you met your co-founder on, on one of these forums and he had this idea. And you ended up basically calling the founder of Trade Hill, I think it was, and pitching him on this idea to make Bitcoin available for retail and see if they would sort of help you do that. You know, what was it like graduating college and, and going and starting in this industry that no one knows what the heck it is and you're trying to make a difference and, and bring it from, you know, zero to one or, or help bring it from zero to one? Um, tell us about the sort of early days of, of starting BitInstant and, uh, just one adventure that was being, you know, 22 years old at the time. It felt like a ride that was never ending and that was constantly going up because there was definitely a lot of stress because we were building a, a crazy startup and growing it. And you'd have to pitch people, not just on, hey, this is my business. This is how I make money and this is how we work and this is how we make payroll for 30 employees, but you also had to convince them that Bitcoin was going to be the future because we didn't have any other, there were no other cryptocurrencies and no one really understood why anyone would want to buy Bitcoin in the first place. So here you're telling a VC, please give me money for my business because people are going to buy this Bitcoin thing because they believe in this magic internet money of the future that you could potentially do something with. And then you'd lose a lot of people 
But then people would say, well, explain to me, obviously, and this is where you meet a lot of humble people. You meet a lot of people who say, okay, I'm not the smartest person. So why are there a lot smarter people getting into this? I want to understand that. People wanted to understand why other people were getting involved in this thing. And they'd really dissect down and understand the Bitcoin software and how connections were made and the relationship between Bitcoin and, and at the time, P2P networks, the largest one being BitTorrent. At the time, people were using that as, a, as an example to explain the differences. And there was a, once you understood the future ramifications of this and that using CPU power to create a hardened kind of like decentralized computer and that being incentivized by this currency unit. So you have all the people. So at the time, you can download the Bitcoin software and you could earn big. It was a Bitcoin wallet, but you're also earning Bitcoin by using it. It was a Bitcoin wallet. It was a Bitcoin miner and a Bitcoin node in one software. But by downloading it, and then you'd have to actually go into your router settings. Imagine every single person who downloaded Bitcoin Core for years, you'd have to go into your router settings and change the port forwarding feature. So it would allow incoming connections. So therefore you could actually start allowing other people to connect to you. And then you can earn Bitcoin in return. Most people didn't do it because you remember like port forwarding was a difficult thing to do back then. It wasn't like most routers had incoming connections turned off. It was disabled. So you needed people to do that. It was this like crazy uphill battle. But once you did that and you downloaded the software and you joined the network, there was so much like understanding that you'd have to have that by that point, you'd be like, oh my God, this is the future. And it was this like click. Most people nowadays don't really understand this. And that's why I still think there's a huge amount of opportunity in Bitcoin land and in crypto just because most people don't fully understand the future ramifications of this thing. I read Bloomberg every morning and I read all these different things and I read the snide remarks that the talking heads still have. And I know they need to sell their ads, but there's just such a still a fundamental misunderstanding of why this thing started and how it works and why this could be such a hard supercomputer mechanism to protect yourself against any type of centralized entity that wants to take over your lives. This is the only software and tool that we have to protect our freedoms and our rights as humans, because there's gonna be a time soon that our freedom of religion is gonna be at stake, freedom of speech, freedom to choose that what we can put inside or do to our bodies, those rights are being eroded. And, and, and honestly, the Bitcoin mechanism is the only tool that we have to protect against those freedoms. Yeah. And I, th I think, like you said earlier, it's, it's a lot more evident to see that in, in some countries outside of the U.S., not that it's not relevant in the U.S. or will someday, you know, maybe sooner or later be relevant in the U.S., but it's just a lot easier to see in a country like, you know, Venezuela with the history of their currency or, um, you know, some of these other cur currencies that have just had hyperinflation and you know, your savings goes to zero sort of overnight. Um, it's a lot easier to see how this central control is, is a huge problem. And, um, you know, Bitcoin proposes obviously to, um, you know, to solve that problem on a global scale. Yeah. Um, 
you've been a part of, you know, several of these bull and bear cycles now, you know, the hype cycles and all that. And obviously, you know, they, they say history, um, I, don't, I don't know how it goes exactly. It's like history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, and so these bear, these bull and bear cycles have had a lot in common and obviously some differences between them, but it sounds like from your perspective, you know, even 10 years into this thing, we've got a long, long way to go potentially if, if the adoption continues and, and people continue to sort of become aware of, of Bitcoin's real potential. Um, oh, yeah. what, what's been most, like, if you had to pick sort of common threads, I think you alluded to earlier, like taking a seat back in these bear moments and, um, thinking about sort of what was not, what was not fluff, um, what was not, you know, overexcitement during, during the bull cycle and what was real. Um, but I'm curious to hear like sort of what the common threads were throughout all these cycles and, and what's actually changed over time. Like one of which being, you know, there's just uh, a whole lot more media coverage now than, than I'm sure there were in, in the early days. It's a great question. Um, and I just, I just, um, did it. you you mentioned Jared Kenna from Trade Hill, the first Bitcoin exchange? I just released a podcast episode on Untold Stories where I um talked to him and Adam B. Levine, who has been around since 2011, who had the first podcast called Let's Talk Bitcoin. And um and if you'll allow me, I'd love to like take your podcast and re uh take this episode and redistribute it on my own podcast for my listeners because I love supporting other podcasts and independent media. And I think podcasters were like the last unbiased and uncorrupted source of like long form independent thought. Like it doesn't exist. And NPR used to be that, but even that's getting out. I used to listen to it a lot more when I was so like the opposite political focus, but I could listen to NPR and, you know, but not anymore or whatever. And so I feel like, but, but going back to your question. Um, okay. So a few common threads. Adam Levine, so the idea of non-fungible tokens has been around since Adam launched rewards on top of Bitcoin for his podcast listeners in 2014. Hmm. And the idea of tokens was launched on top of Bitcoin. People don't realize that Tether, USDT, actually predated Ethereum. It existed on top of Bitcoin on the MasterCoin protocol uh, before Ethereum even launched. So the idea of tokens, the idea of NFTs, the idea of tokenizing equity has been around securities tokens, the idea of building like smart contract, even Satoshi talked about like transactional layers and being able to do like data sets. He built into the Bitcoin code, the original Satoshi code had some, uh, uh, uh code in there for shuffling cards related to poker. Because it seemed like Satoshi was, or the Satoshi group, was going to build some base layer code to prove out how you can use Bitcoin in a non-monetary sort of way. In fact, that's why multi-signature and things like that came around. So these are some great threads. And if you like focus on them, if you focus on like people building out insurance products and smart contracts where the enforcement of the contract happens via code, and not needing to rely on courts. I think the reliance on the any, if you could build out any technology using blockchain tech where you don't have to rely on courts anymore. So when it comes to like foreclosure bankruptcy, debt tokens, Bitfinex has been doing debt tokens. They did, so like people are talking about, hey, why doesn't Celsius 
Voyager, whatever, that are like only 80 cents on the dollar of their customer funds, why don't they do like a debt token? Bitfinex launched BFX token and made everyone whole when they had a big hack in 2014. In fact, if you held a BFX token, you've like tripled your money at this point. Now that's just one example. There are examples of companies that tried to do it that went under. But here's an example of Mt. Gox that eight years later is still in bankruptcy in the courts. So these common threads, those five, if you just stick to those and look at projects and coins and tokens that are trying to like change that, you'll be very successful. Yeah, I think I think that's great advice. And there's few people who've been in, you know, involved with all of this as long as you. And I always enjoy speaking with with people like you and you know Roger and Eric back from the early days as well, and and some others who have been around for a long time. I think it's just a very different perspective from others like myself who have you know been involved for you know going on five years or so now. Um, obviously, sort of growing in involvement over those years. In the beginning, I just sort of was like, okay, this seems like yeah. something that um you know, has the potential to be huge. It sort of like hits on a bunch of, you know, topics that I think are interesting and, and growing and, and trending in the right direction. So might as well put a little money in and watch. And then, you know, once you put the money in, you sort of get more invested to learn more. And, and that cycle just sort of continues to, you know, a few years later, I've got this podcast now talking to yeah. a lot of people in the space and, and everything like that. But it's just a very different and uh, to me, very interesting perspective from people who are involved 2010, 2011, 2012, etc. Um, I think one of the particularly different things about back then versus now, now it's a, a global phenomenon. There's, you know, millions and millions of people who are in discords and the like, and all these different crypto communities. Um, back then it was just like, you know, a few Bitcoiners scattered around the world, going to a first meetup in New York or San Francisco or wherever they were and flying from all over to meet their online friends. What was the importance for you? And I know we're wrapping up on time, so this would be one of the last questions, but um, you know, especially like growing up in, in an Orthodox Jewish community, I think community and, and very strong community was like almost in your blood, if, if not in your culture. Um, and you sort of, you know, maybe didn't fully dig what, what you were growing up with, but found this Bitcoin community that was sort of like everything you had wanted and, and found sort of community and, and really like family there. What was the importance of that in the early days and how's your relationship with, with the Bitcoin community sort of, um, you know, changed over, over the years? Uh, great question. I was, I was looking it, the timing worked out so brilliantly because here I was growing up in a very religious community where it was a very religious and wealthy community that was self-sufficient. The community never, the community had its own restaurants, its own houses of worship, its own businesses, its own uh, 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 matchmakers, its own schools. We had our own everything. And so growing up in like almost like a very multi-generational a family that had that could trace its roots back to King Solomon. Like, you know, my my uncles and grandparents famously had on their walls of their house this big family tree that show how they were related to Jerry Seinfeld going all the way back to King Solomon. And they were very, <clears throat> very proud of this like royal roots. 
but that fostered this, like, if you're not in the community, you're outside the community. And so for people who, who live in the community and grow up within it, it's a very popular, it's very nice, it's very positive. Most nine out of 10 people fit in and love it and grow up and live very long, happy lives. But I quickly, as a child, realized that I wasn't going to be happy in this community and I wasn't going to grow up in this community and I wasn't going to enjoy this community. And I was different. And um, and I was okay with that because I wanted to, I, I didn't, I just socially, I was different and, 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 and my view of the world and my view of religion was different. And I didn't, <clears throat> I didn't see happiness as like growing up and being an old, you know, growing up with, with all these grandkids in this community. I just didn't see that as my, as my happiness. So I was looking for a community to join and the early Bitcoin community was just like a bunch of misfits, geeks, and nerds who also were being disenfranchised from their own community. People who also lived on the edges of whatever communities they were physically living in at the time. So we all banded together and became this big family. And these are people who I could literally not see or speak to for years. And then like Jared Ken is a perfect example. I could not see Jared for years. But then just recently, we spent a weekend in Austin together and we could not stop crying for three days, like best, best friends. And he met my wife for the first time because we were just dating Courtney and I back then. And it's just such a, it was like amazing. And same thing with so many of my other friends you meet. It's like your lifetime brothers and sisters. And I don't know. And I'm so grateful for that. And if, if, if that's all I get from this whole industry, I'm happy. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, all that a lot of people hope for is to find great friends and uh, a community that feels like a family. So it's, it's wonderful that you were able to do that. And, uh, you know, to, to see outside of the situation and, and the circumstances in which you're born, I think, takes, um, you know, some guts and some open mindedness, but to sort of venture outside and, and find your own clan, yeah. I think that's, uh, that's really nice. But, uh, you know, coming up on time here, I want to wrap things up, but I think the last thing that would be interesting to touch on is, uh, you know, you're still, you're still very young and, uh, a lot of life packed into uh 30 some odd years you've lived so far, but a lot of life hopefully to go. Uh, I'm curious to hear sort of, uh, you know, obviously you're doing the podcast now and, uh, encourage people to go check that out. It's called untold stories. Um, great podcast that Charlie hosts. And you're also, you know, working with some small businesses down in, in Sarasota and Florida and, and investing in crypto, I think still and, and advising. Um, but you're, you're doing a lot basically, but also sort of have a nice lifestyle, I understand. And I'm just curious to hear, you know, you've, you've done a lot in, the, in these early years, but curious to hear sort of where your priorities lie today and, and what you view as, uh, you know, being in store for, for this chapter or the next. And uh, Lastly, in closing, where, where people can go and, and sort of follow you as, as you go, go on and uh, pursue this next chapter. Thank you. I um, You can definitely check out my show at uh, untoldstories.com. Uh, I love, I've been podcasting for three years. And wherever you get your audio, please take a listen. Um, the show has given me purpose because there aren't a lot of constants in life. We go through life uh, with so many uh, inconsistencies and uh, changes and humans are very good at adapting to change. But if you're like me and you get PTSD and anxiety from even the thought of the unknown, being able to have a podcast that's consistent year over year 
and having a, a loyal listenership that's that's with me through thick and thin has just been the best been the best life things that I can call success in life. Um, so thank you to all my listeners. At the same time, I, I recently started uh, recently started a VC fund because I realized that down here in Florida called Drew Adventures, we're an early stage $13 million fund. Originally during the bull market, it was going to be just a $2 million fund. But then as the bear market started to, to come and people were seeing that, you know, we're going to be maybe going through some sideways price action for a while, that a lot of very smart investors saw that, hey, this is the time to invest. And our fund ended up closing at 13 million instead of two. So we're just re- we're just investing in in early companies, pick and shovel plays. I love being able to be like the entrepreneur in residence and working with all of the different companies and helping them solve the problems and get to like wherever they need to be from zero to one or three to four or whatever it is. I love doing that. Um, I started producing movies in the past two years too. I produced two movies. My wife's an actor, so she got me into that world. We did a romantic comedy called Ask Me to Dance, and then we did a horror flick in Scotland called Trauma Therapy Psychosis. Both are in both production. The first one has already been sold, so you guys will see it this holiday season. Please look out for it. It's called Ask Me to Dance. I'm very excited about it. Just wanted to do something different. I want to, you know, I got into Bitcoin when I was in the middle of college. And I was at a point where I didn't know what I was even good at back then. I was just taking every class that you could. I still don't know what I'm good at. I want to figure out what would I have done if I didn't find Bitcoin? What are my actual Charlie? Like, what are my skills? What am I better at than everyone else? I don't know that answer. And I want to spend the next few years trying to figure that out. Well, it's a great overview. And uh, I'm certainly looking forward to the movie, among other things, and, and following along with, uh, you know, your investing through the VC over the years and, and continuing to do the podcast. I, I love all of it. And I think, uh, you know, if there's any answer to, to what you're best at, I, I'm confident you'll find it. It certainly seal, seems like you are, uh, you know, putting your your feet in enough buckets and uh, just experimenting. And like I said, you know, I, I know you're still very young and, uh, long prosperous future ahead of you i hope but uh thank you charlie for for taking the time and coming on the show it's been great talking and uh i know you got to run so we will pick it up another time but thank you and appreciate the time amazing thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it and congratulations for the show and everything that you're doing